Hello everyone, welcome back to Collaborative Edges, conversations to inspire initiatives across languages and cultures. I'm Rocio Quispeagnoli, the host of Collaborative Edges. Today, February 16, 2018, the Symposium Migration Studies and the Humanist Perspective has taken place at Michigan State University. And for this edition of our podcast series, we have in the studio the Symposium guest speakers. Evelyn Al-Sultani, director of the Arab and Muslim American Studies Program at the University of Michigan. Madeleine Hron, Hron associate professor of English and Film Studies at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. And Anacelia Centella, uh, professor emerita in the Ethnic Studies Department at University of California, San Diego. We also have Professor uh, Miguel Cabañas, Professor of Spanish at Michigan State University and the organizer of the symposium. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Hello. Thank, Thank you. you. How are you? Okay, let's, let's start with a conversation with a first question for Miguel. Could you tell us the goals of this symposium and when and how you started working on it? Who's sponsoring this initiative? Well, we started working on it uh, when there was a call for uh, submissions of uh, collaborative uh, uh, new initiatives uh, put out by the College of Arts and Letters at MSU. And uh, we, uh, out of a conversation with another colleague, we thought that we needed to start conversations about migration studies at a moment where uh, <coughs> migration studies are always on the news And, you know, many times uh, you only hear economists or po a political scientists or sociologists talking about it. And yet we, we don't have the uh, perspective of the humanities. And we thought that it was important to start these conversations, create the space and um, start uh, talking about these issues and, you know, try to, to develop a <laughs> a strategy to get to get our stories out out there uh, so we started working about a year ago and we decided to invite the, the speakers that are here with us and also to involve graduate students and uh, faculty from MSU to uh, to to talk about these issues Thank you very much, Miguel, for this brief presentation. I would like to ask you now to continue the conversation with the guest speakers. Yeah, it, it's it's been a, a great day for the conference. And, uh, you know, I would like to ask you, what why is it so important today to talk about migration? Well, I guess I'll start because my presentation was the most global perspective um, of all of them that because it deals with refugee issues and well there's 65 million um, new displaced people every year um, so that's the highest since World War II so it's increasingly our larger problem in our global world and it's the way that you deal with issues dealing from civil war to climate change now um, is people move people cannot stay in their home countries, and what are you going to do with these people? Are you going to welcome them? Are you going to stick them in camps? Are you going to um, subject them to lengthy um, asylum claims and processes? Are you going to force them to move somewhere else? So I think this issue is certainly not going to go away. It's only going to get worse in the current climate because we really don't have any solutions for it um, mm -hmm. right now in a political 
perspective. Thank you, Madeline. And um, Anathelia Centella, uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, I was very happy to participate in this conversation today, especially because um, we are now confronting such high levels of intolerance in the United States, and this triggers physical violence and um, other ways of uh, erasing people's identities. And I think we're losing the opportunity to learn from the groups and to understand how we can, in fact, uh, open our minds and experiences to allow for uh, a greater enrichment. I particularly am interested in the erasure of languages, uh, not only in families that no longer teach their children their home language because they fear that that would be an impediment to their progress, um, but also um, the uh, general um, displacement of of. Attitudes towards people's different accents, etc. And I think that um, it's no, um, it, it's not a coincidence that in the first ten days of the Trump administration, the Southern Poverty Law Center found more than 800 cases of uh, hate crimes that were documented, and um, that we're looking at an uptake in in this. I think it's important for us to be able to disaggregate the experiences of the newcomers from those Italians and Irish and Germans who have been here for more generations and many other groups. I think we need to talk with them across those borders. I think we also need to look at the different Latino subgroups mm -hmm. and not confuse the Salvadoran or the Cuban experience with the Puerto Rican or the Mexican experience. And um, I'm concerned about our lack of reaching out to African-American communities for us to be able to discuss what unites us and what are the problems that uh, we need to address together. Thank you. And uh, Evelyn, uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts and you you talk about hate crimes and the, the issues with that. Yes. So uh, migration studies is very important to address today. But as an American studies scholar, I would say that it's always been important to address when considering the history of this country, particularly since uh, Native Americans are the true Americans, and therefore studying the history of the United States requires studying immigration and people from all over the world. Um, and there have always been debates about who's a real American, and those debates continue. So long ago, uh, there were debates around who belonged here based on whiteness, since whiteness was a prerequisite to be a citizen before 1952, and those kinds of debates still continue today in terms of whether Muslims are considered to be Americans, uh, whether undocumented immigrants can be considered Americans. And I think that the conference today really highlighted all of those kinds of issues. Regarding my own presentation about hate crimes, my hope is to try to think through uh, cases in which Muslim youth are victims of hate crime, but when their cases are not labeled as hate crimes, but as parking disputes and as road rage. And I was trying to think through 
how we can think about hate crimes differently if we were to think about violence against Arab and Muslim communities, not only through hate crimes, but also through state violence, for example, through the Patriot Act, through uh, U.S. wars in Muslim countries, uh, through countering violent extremism, and of course, through the quote-unquote Muslim ban. Yeah, thank you. And uh, is there a specific humanist perspective? Is there a, a, a different way of looking at, at things? Um, it, or, or is just something that, you know, basically all our work is interdisciplinary in, in quality? But what is the humanist perspective? Well, as for me and my work on refugees, I mean, refugees are easily reduced to statistics. They're really um, easily dismissed as very distant others. And I think that a humanities perspective really brings to light their lived experience, their reality, their um, humanity. And it forces, especially since I work on film and, and narrative, to think through these issues with some form of empathy or um maybe even vicariously living through their experience with them. And this kind of shared experience, I think, promotes a different type of understanding than just a bunch of numbers, right? I mean, I think scientists have shown that we really don't have the capacity to understand the experience of um, more than actually two people. Um, so as soon as the statistics go up to three, we were, were lost. So talking about 65 million people, that's way beyond our understanding. So I think that for me, the humanities really brings that out and really asks us to relate to um, our emotions as well and how, let's say, emotions such as sympathy operate or um, indifference, as well as um, emotions that are less pleasant, such as fear or maybe anger or indignation, and how that these um, shape our images or understandings of refugees and immigrants in in the con- in this country and all around the world, and um, really um, helping us kind of maybe also see different truths that are not always um, represented in the media and. Um, accessible to us in other ways um, through statistics or public policy or um, rhetoric around us every day. Yeah. Well, I was very touched by the poem that you read, Danielle, uh, by this young um, uh, undocumented youth who came on his own at age nine, Javier, Javier Zamora. Zamora. Yeah. Yeah. And the extent to which uh, and, and how he said that he had to write it in a poem because he would not be able to deal with such powerful and painful memories in any other form. So I think the humanities allows us to rethink uh, these experiences and communicate them in different ways that reach um, people uh, in more personal ways. The other thing that I was very touched by was uh, the moment in which uh, Professor Hassan talks about his family going to of all yeah. places, Sioux Falls, yeah. you know, from, from Lebanon South in the 1800s. <laughs> and um, the tears that that brought up on several occasions as he was making his presentation. Uh, and my own, uh, you know, experience as the daughter of a Mexican uh immigrant and the Puerto Rican and those different colonial and and uh, neo-colonial situations that caused them to come here. 
I think the personal and the political uh, get very much uh, better addressed when you have a, a very uh, broad humanist approach to these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So as I mentioned uh, in my presentation, I think that the importance of humanist perspectives is in helping us think beyond the terms of the debate as given to us by government or by the media. Uh, so for example, within Muslim American studies, we often talk about a good-bad Muslim dichotomy, which basically means that after 9-11, Mahmoud Mamdani wrote about this uh, in his book, uh, that the response to the idea that Muslims are terrorists is the quote-unquote good Muslim. And this is someone who is patriotic, who's willing to give their life and fight and die for the United States, who supports government policies, and it promotes a very limited view of patriotism. We can think about Kazir Khan at the Democratic National Convention as the ultimate good Muslim who has literally given his son life. He's he's lost his son, and he really came to symbolize uh, the the good Muslim in America. Uh, But the humanist perspective says, is this really the answer? Is is the answer to the quote-unquote bad Muslim the good Muslim? What are the limits? How can we think beyond this? How can we think about how this is putting unreasonable expectations on human beings? Uh, So I see the humanist perspective as being really important to helping us think beyond the terms of a debate as they are given to us and seeing alternative ways to think about pressing social and political issues of our time. Yeah, I think that's very important, especially, you know, when we talk about language, when we talk about um, issues of, you know, political political and and, um, also human rights in a way that, you know, we need to, to change. In a way, we need to disrupt the, the discourse. We need to, to, to talk about it in a different way. And um, I think, you know, we don't hear enough from this perspective. I think, you know, it's not, it's, it's uh, not present yeah, in, in yeah. our media. Yeah. And, you know, if we, if we are able to, to educate people uh, to, to, to spread the, these ideas, I think it would be useful for at least people would, would be able to contrast them with what they're being fed in, cor- in, the, in corporate <coughs> media in some ways. Uh, so, but what do we do? Like, you know, how do we do that? Um, can we do that? Can we take corporate media on? I think one of the jobs as uh, scholars in the humanities is to highlight and make known the logics that legitimize exclusion. That oftentimes they go unrecognized, they go unnoticed, they become so normalized. So I think part of the process is exposing it and making it known and becoming aware of how that operates, I think is an important first step. And that is something that literary scholars or people working with languages and text can do very well. You know, point out the things that are obvious, but I'm sorry. No, uh, Rocio, I agree, and I think um, this is why I talk about the um, racialization uh, aspects of language and the ways in which um, language has been remapped from biology and uh, racism has been remapped from biology onto language because it's no longer politically acceptable 
um, to talk about people's skin color or their shape of their eyes or their uh, uh, hair, uh, uh, types of hair. But it is very acceptable to make very demeaning comments about the languages that people speak or the way they speak English. And what we have done is talk about race indirectly by attacking language, which in fact ends up being counterproductive. It is what you're it's going to, in fact, make families uh, less cohesive and create greater um, uh, distance in the community when uh, children can no longer speak to their grandparents. Uh, and when um, I have my niece listen to their father on tape and he's talking Spanish and they don't know what he's saying right. and they realize they have missed half of this man's life. Yeah. And they can it's never go back. And they can never go back to that. Uh, you know, and I think it's very powerful what you're saying. And I think, you know, many people live that every day. The, you know, speak English, you know, we're in, we're in the United States or speak American, which I don't know what American is, you know. <laughs> American is not a language, obviously, but, uh, you know, the I think that's, that is really a, an important lesson because people do that in a, it's been naturalized, but they don't, you know, not necessarily people understand that, the, the connotations of that. Mm -hmm. and, and how about you, uh, Madeline? What do you think? Well, I think that my work with images kind of shows that maybe um, we also learn, have to learn to see new forms of images and ways to interrupt these images. For example, I talked about a film by um, uh, a Chinese dissident called Ai Weiwei, who, who's taken up the cause of um, refugees. And one of the things that he does is he disrupts very stereotypical images that we have about refugees by giving new ones. For example, you know, there's the famous image of um, Alan Kurdi on the beach, this small toddler. And so what Ai Weiwei has done, he has taken, for example, himself and on the beach. So kind of showing that anybody could be a refugee or why is it that we suddenly privilege the position of small children and what, why do we just care about babies um, being killed? What about adults, you know, or um, just kind of making people think. And I think that that's um, are really giving the forum to um, these creative people like artists and, and filmmakers and writers really um, helps us to see um, creative ways to um, dismantle the, the, the negative stereotypes and the negative media portrayal around us. I think that, you know, um, one of the things that makes me sad is that, you know, um, the xenophobes around us are constantly spewing the same kind of language, the same kind of rep repetitive hate rhetoric. But um, in a way, it's it's a comfort to me or it, it, it gives me some hope because I hope that, you know, we can interrupt that discourse with new imagery or new ways of creative ways of um, d disrupting that discourse that um, engages people and makes them think and makes them move away from these um, same ways of thinking that they've heard all the time. So I, I, I really find that um, um, it gives me a lot of optimism in that way. That's great. I, uh, you know, some, some films though, you know, they, they kind of portray things in a, in a kind of mythological way, the myths of the, the, uh, 
you know, the migrant who makes it, et cetera, oh, sure. or the refugee, the happy of- refugee or the, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I was wondering, you know, when we talk about documentaries, is document, document documentary films are disrupting that narrative? Are they, or are we, you know, are we, do we need to try to make new narratives that, that, you know, that are, that reach more people because documentary film sometimes doesn't reach a lot of uh, big audience, but, you know, other kinds of films and how can we, you know. Yeah. And that's why I I think Ai Weiwei's film is so powerful because for the first time a filmmaker has been given a lot of money. I mean, he's not disclosed how much money he's had, but, you know, he traveled to 40, uh, 23 countries, visited 40 camps, had 900 hours of footage, 600 interviews. I mean, this guy had oodles of money that a normal documentarian would never dream of. So he's able to do some really neat things like, you know, shots with drones and just a lot of neat stuff. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to play the the, the 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 game. As a film scholar, I cannot play the game of what's better, a documentary or a narrative film. I think that there's value in both. And uh, I think that a successful um, filmmaker will will – will also take up and use stereotypes in a way to appeal to people's emotions. I mean, as I mentioned slightly, the the sentimentalization of the child, yes, that's a stereotype, but why not use pathos to engage people's emotions? I mean, um, you know... Uh, um, and, um, uh, you know, we talked about Hassan's emotional response to his grandmother, um, and definitely that was... Um, emotion affected us all. And I think that emotion is going to help us transform our um, maybe rational or irrational thinking about other people. So um, I think that, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I, I don't think that there's uh, – I'm not going to give the for, the secret formula away about how to make a successful film. Please contact me and um, I will uh, I will sell that for a million dollars. I have a formula. Okay. <laughs> so Giving I, it away for free. And I mm, will. The humanist you are. So I, I wrote a book on representations of Arabs and Muslims in the media after 9-11. And um, what I found is that there's an increase in quote-unquote positive representations where there are many more patriotic – Arab and Muslim Americans represented. And the larger context is that uh, Jack Shaheen wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, where he looks at a thousand movies, uh, Hollywood movies, and how they represent Arabs. And he says that out of the thousand that he looks at, he would characterize 52 as even-handed and 12 as positive. So there's a huge history of distorting um, the image of Arabs and Muslims. And people often ask me, what's the solution? And I feel like the solution isn't, oh, don't represent them as terrorists anymore, but we need more stories. That if there are a thousand negative portrayals, we need a thousand varied ones. Right. And that that's ultimately the answer. There's so many stories that the stereotype of the terrorist is not the only one that sticks. And what I wanted to add is the uh, extent to which each of us needs to uh, help uh, disseminate these stories and go out for them. We can't wait for the $2 million that <laughs> uh, Way had yeah. to make it or... Um, Maybe more. <laughs> probably more. Um, I, but I cite Bourdieu and this notion that we are all complicit unless we challenge authority, it would not continue to function 
if it didn't have our complicit acceptance. And that means speaking to neighbors, getting involved in local community activities, giving library talks, um, speaking mainly to the groups and letting them produce their own videos, handing out cameras to young people, getting those um, uh, impressions in their raps, in their poetry, and um, in uh, letters home, and see what comes from their own experience. Yeah. And the empowerment that that, that that brings. Yes, and I must say that one of the things that really um, inspired me today was listening to the graduate students who were speaking, because I really feel like they had a lot of gifts Um, for example, Jose talking about his experience as uh, a DACA recipient was really empowering to see how he's challenged and overcome all the stereotypes that he's been given or that um, Hima is able to navigate both in the Nepalese and the Bhutanese communities to create some form of reconciliation just through her work. I don't think she realizes or Jose realizes how inspiring that is and yeah. how positive it is. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think that we're the people you should be talking to. I think you should have been talking to the graduate students because <laughs> they're the future, really. They yes. are. Miguel, would you like to ask the, our last question about advice? Yes, I would yeah. like you to ask, uh, I mean, I would like to ask you, uh, what advice would you give to students and young scholars who are interested in studying migration? I would very much encourage them to join us. The more, the merrier. There are so many problems that need a humanist perspective. Yes. And so I would very much encourage them. Of course, law school is important and med school is important, but there are other things worth considering that are also important in terms of helping us solve very pressing social and political issues. Yes. And Acelia? I think you have to be passionate about what you're going to study um, because there's a lot of boring stuff that you have to go through. <laughs> so <laughs> I would urge people to look around and pick something that really matters to them and hopefully to a larger community and say, this is what I'm going to um, write about in a way that reaches more than 10 academics who will read that paper. Uh, and I ask graduate students and faculty members to ask their students, undergraduates and graduates, to write papers that are written for the community, to publish them and put them online and go on YouTube and produce things. I had students in San Diego and students in Swarthmore produce volumes on language issues in those local communities uh, written by uh, students who went out to communities. That's wonderful. And I would urge people to go out into the communities and start their work there. That is wonderful. And I would also tell students not to become despairing or despondent. I think there's a lot of negative um, um, depictions out there, a lot of problems out there, but I think I think that they can change the world. You know, um, as a student, um, I saw the Berlin Wall fall, I saw communism fall, I saw apartheid fall, I saw presidents, be or so I saw polit previous political prisoners become presidents. So it's completely possible, and I think um, that students are the ones who are going to be making the change in this world and, you know, to look with optimism to creative solutions and to to activism um, as, as means of, of hope and um, sources even of joy. 
Okay. Well, thank, thank you. you. So much. Thank you so much. I'd like to conclude uh, this conversation thanking our guests today, Evelyn, Anacelia, uh, Madeline, and Miguel. And invite you to visit the website of the symposium at migrations.web.cal.msu.edu for more information about the event as well as for our guests. And finally, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. I also want to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trego. Tune in for our next podcast.